And how uh, even at the age of 60, uh, almost 70, he's still yeah. taking insane risks. Doing yeah. Stunts. yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. No, he's, he was, uh, he was wonderful. You get a sense of that. And also you get the sense of his outrage when Jerry yeah. expressed his concern that Buster's going up over a single track trestle and uh, he might fall off. And Buster he's, says, he's, child's play, child's play. And, Kath, he's, uh, on, he's on one of those, was it one of the push yeah. cars? Yeah. He's reading a yeah. map and the yeah. map gets all tangled up in his face. I mean, and the guy's, he's, he's, probably drunk and he's probably you know he's close to dying at this point welcome to comedy centric your place for all things comedy every week we'll discuss the legends and the people who built the business the performers writers behind the scenes and stories that you have never heard so relax take a load off and join us for this episode of Comedy Centric. Now the host of your show, nationally headlining comedian, a woman with a wicked sense of humor and a killer Jersey accent, Julia Scotty. There she is. Oh, oh, I'm just, just, I'm just doing a, a little second. light I'm, reading. I'm so, just a second. I'm, I'm in the middle of this. It's just fascinating. This. Oh, you, I did not know that. I, uh, you see what I, you, uh, what B- I Buster you Keaton. What I yeah, that's right. Uh huh. And, and 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 ask me why that that's important. What? Why is that important, Julia? I'm going to tell you in a couple of minutes. But hey, Caldwell, this is Kathy Caldwell. Hey, what up, Scotty? With a duplicate Christmas tree, like one's not enough. Like you no, got to show off. I need two trees. I'm so festive. Because you're so bushy. <sighs> I said bushy. No, uh, see, everybody uh, is going to get all dirty-minded. Oh, uh, stop, please. All right, stop. You too, everybody. Stop. So, uh, uh, what did you want to, what are you doing, Kath? What's going up in the woods there? What's going on? You getting snow? You snowed in? We're going to get, it's going to get cold. Tell me about it. Like, I know. I got to, and I got to go, uh, I got to go traveling these next couple of days. You're staying I'm, on the I'm East little... Coast? Yeah, but I'm nervous because it's, uh, well, because it's uh, it's not going to snow here, but we're going to get uh, this is a uh, what is this tropical storm uh, Jose or something? What's the name of this store? I don't know. It's a guy. It's some, it's a guy store. Jorge, uh, which means which means you can't depend on it coming here anyway. It, you know what? When it gets here, it'll be complaining. It'll be it'll like be this is the worst storm ever. Oh, I it's so cold. So I've never been so. I was sick. gonna bring, I was gonna bring snow, but I changed my mind. Happy Hanukkah, by the way. Yes, uh, we're uh, night two, <laughs> yes, I think. Uh, I don't know, night two. It's there. The only thing longer than Hanukkah were those stupid soccer playoffs. Oh my god, I'm so glad oh, it's over. Oh, Argentina won. Argentina. Argentina. You gotta say Argentina. I tried. <laughs> I don't have enough phlegm. I know you watched it. I know you I watched did. it. I. It was exciting. It was the. It was like the best. I know, best game ever. Yeah. Does anything uh, strike your fancy, Julia? Do you get excited about anything? I do get excited about a lot of things. I'll have what? you know. You know what I'm excited about? That's a great segue. <laughs> Set you up. I'm like. I'm like you did. soft pitch. Yeah. I'm excited about this book. Can you see Buster Keaton? Buster Keaton. Uh, handsome fellow. Here's what. Here's this. He was a handsome fellow. I know. Um, here's the story. Where the author of this book, James Curtis, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. is going to be our game, our guest tonight. Our game? No, he's not our game. He's going to be our guest tonight. He's our and, game. Uh, I, and, and here's a case of I bought the book because I really am a big uh, Keaton fan. And uh, I and I'm looking at him. Going, Gee, I wonder. I love. He was on. The, I got. I put him on the wish list of people I'd like on the show. And I sent him a sent him an email. Yeah. Don't you know the son of a gun said he yes he'd come on. So uh, our guest tonight is James Curtis, author of Buster Keaton: A Filmmaker's Life. Uh, I'm excited. It's the I first, am too. I, like, I want to know Ooh. why what what drove him to to you know, want to do this. Well, he's a, I, I wasn't going to ask him that because it's not the only book he's got. And he seems to have a, a pension for comedy, although he's not a, a comedian. Well, we'll talk to him and find out okay. what the hell is going on with James Curtis. So let's, let's, uh, let that, let's ask, let's let that be the first question when he comes on, just go, what the hell is going on with you, James yeah. Curtis? See how he I'm, I'm going to ask him if I can call him Jim though. I, I um, Really? Maybe. I think I, Why don't you start you know, with think, Mr. Curtis and then work back from there? How about I let you call, you say, can we call you Jim? Well, you're no, prettier than you're, I am. You're, that's not true. Not I true. I have, I have nicer trees. How's your finger, by the way? It's broken. I had to call. Oh, my God. Still with this thing? You finally called somebody? Yeah, I finally got an appointment. You found a doctor up there? Do you have to get a vet or something because you're up in the... You got the game warden I know on not it. Real doctor. No, all right. What did he say, the doctor? Well, I have to see oh, them. She... Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, well, this is an ongoing saga. Oh, speaking of ongoing sagas, oh, well, yes. we'll get to this. You know what I'm going to talk about, don't you? Oh, paper check oh, in time. Yeah, I got my. I got. I got 48 rolls in the uh, delivered to my house the other day, so I am good for the winter. Well. I'm good for December. No, I'm Hello, good Miss Scotty. Your toilet paper's here. <laughs> and yeah, my neighbors are like, quiet. What is she doing with all this stuff? She's shitting Don't up a storm. That's what she's doing. None of your business what I'm doing. Anyway, um, we're going to go uh, take a little break. We'll do, uh, do a commercial uh, for, for all of my junk. For your stuff, right? And, your shit. And when we come back, do you have something you want to plug? No. No. No, you don't. Okay. And uh, so when we come back, uh, Curtis or Jim Curtis, or Mr. Curtis will be on to talk to us about Buster Keaton. Yay. See you in a few. Hi there, everybody. It's me, Julia. Hey, why am I talking to you now? Now, of all times? Uh, because I just, uh, they, my, my new special on Dry Bar, uh, Dry Bar Comedy Channel, has just been released. It's called Julie Scotty Jersey Fresh, because that's what I am. I slap myself. That's how fresh I am. So uh, you have to subscribe, though, to get the Dry Bar. Um, and if you do, you get access to, like, I don't know, thousands of other comics. But see my special first, Jersey Fresh. And if you enter my name, Julia Scotty, uh, it's my understanding that you will get a free month of dry bar. So um, go. I miss. We're we're back. Are we back? We're really back. You know. Okay. So let's right. get right to. I know. Um, I'm excited for a couple of reasons. Buster Keaton is one of my comedic idols. Uh, there it is. And this is our really our first. He's our first real offer too on the show. 
he's got a real publisher. This is like wow. By now, I mean, this guy's not fooling around. He's got a deal. bunch. Yeah, he's got a bunch of books out. Uh, he's written a, a book just on Buster Keaton too, Dispenser Tracy, W.C. Fields, and he just came out with a book, I believe, on uh, Mort Saul, which I want to talk to him about right out, right off the bat before we get to Buster. So, uh, give a big hand to our guest, Mr. James Curtis. Yay! Welcome. Hi, James. Hi, everybody. We, we've had a big debate before you came on about whether we can call you Jim or James or Mr. Curtis. Oh, I, I, I go by Sir, uh, Your Excellency, uh, or Jim. Oh, Lord. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, Jim. So, yeah, so nice to uh, finally meet. I know we hooked up on Facebook. I was thrilled about that. Uh, but this is great. Thank you for coming uh, sure. on our show. Sure. All right. Pleasure. So, we're going to talk about. Buster in a couple of minutes, but I, I was, you know, doing research on you today. The book I am, my next James Curtis book is going to be the one on Mort Saul, uh, Last Man Standing. Is, that's a, mm -hmm. is that a, that's a new one, right? Well, it was uh, published in 2017 on the occasion of his 90th birthday, and uh, he cooperated with it. It was something, uh, it was different because I'm used to dead subjects, and uh, he was still alive, and so... Uh, <laughs> We sat down and did about 40 hours of talks, and um, I spoke to his, uh, as many of his contemporaries as I could reach, and uh, just missed Jonathan Winters, for instance, but uh, oh. uh, talked with uh, Dick Cabot, Woody Allen, uh, Mark Russell, uh, some good people, some great people, yeah. and um, and uh, I, I, I had thought about doing Mort for years as a subject, and I always talked myself out of it because he had a reputation for being difficult, well-earned. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to get involved in this and I'm going to rue the day I ever decided to try it. And uh, uh, and it didn't go entirely smoothly at the same time. I'm very glad that I did it. Uh, Mort was a singular character to get to know. And uh, I think he was happy with the book. He was he had portions of it read to him. His eyes gave out on on him yeah. by the time it came out. But uh, he was very pleased with how uh, the rough stuff was handled. And uh, I, you, I don't pull you, any punches, but it's what it was. Yeah. Well, you did some interviews with him at the Throckmorton? At the Throckmorton Theater? Well, I, well, I did. Uh, there was one that went up on, um, well, it wasn't Zoom. What is it? What did they call it? A telescope or something like that. Anyway, uh, Periscope. used to go on. Periscope, that was it. Thank you. Periscope. And uh, Periscope, yeah. And so... He was appearing until the um, uh, COVID crisis hit uh, at the Throckmorton uh, Theater right. every Thursday night. So you right. could go in and hear Mort for an hour. And uh, when the book came out, we did kind of a debriefing session that uh, was very well attended. There were people standing out on the sidewalk looking through the window. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it was a very good time. I think it's probably still up on Periscope that. Yeah. I tried to download it today. I think it, they said it was off. But I, I tell you, I, I, the Throckmorton and Kathy could tell you this is in San mm -hmm. Mill Valley. It's one of my favorite theaters to work. I fell in love with. Um, the lady who runs it is escaping me. Right? Lucy Mercer. Lucy Mercer, just just yeah. a wonderful, wonderful, sweet yeah. lady. Yeah. yeah. And I got and and it's I work. I got to work with Mort about twenty years ago in New York. Um, oh. and, I did. I opened for him, and I was really uh, 
it was one of the highlights of my life. I, I just uh, he was he was really nice to me, which surprised me. Didn't know yeah, as 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 well it sh should be because he he really was the start of as I say on the subtitle of modern co comedy, uh, yeah. particularly uh, political commentary. Uh, he started in 1953 uh, before Lenny Bruce ever got very controversial, right. but Lenny Bruce was still doing movie parodies back at the time, like Jonathan Winters was, and. Uh, Mort was the first guy that stood up on stage and called out people like uh, uh, Richard Nixon and uh, uh, Senator McCarthy. And uh, mm -hmm. at a time when that was not considered to be uh, uh, necessarily safe or uh, delightful for uh, drinking audiences. And uh, so he had a tough time coming through. But uh, the big thing about Mort is that he established a um, informal chain of theaters around the country that would book what were referred to uh, colloquially at the time as uh, smart comics. And so, mm -hmm. um, and how he did it was uh, he went to the jazz clubs who right. were used to booking unconventional acts. And uh, you could say in some respects that um, if you draw a straight line between Will Rogers and Mort Saul, you get uh, Lord Buckley somewhere in between, but uh, mm -hmm. uh Mort was really influenced by the music, and he became an acceptable spoken word act. Uh, the first uh, at places like uh, Storyville in Boston and Mr. Kelly's in Chicago and Basin Street East in New York City. And once he opened them up, then people like Shelley Berman, Mike Nichols and Elaine May, Woody Allen, Dick mm -hmm. Cabot, uh, all those guys uh, had a place to play. They could go around the country and uh, have venues, and uh, that was all Mort's doing it, before him. None of that existed. The jazz clubs, that connection between his type of comedy and, and, and Lenny's kind, Lord Buckley and mm -hmm. all those uh, guys, it's so it, it's such a natural because it's it's their comedy so musical. There's a head, mm -hmm. you know, there's a there's a main uh, theme, and yeah. then every, you know, and you take off and do your your, your improvisational stuff. Uh, you know, there's a there's a story that Mort told me, as a matter of fact, because he, he was so thrilled when he was embraced by the musicians and when he could open for them and otherwise engage. In fact, if you go on the Internet uh, on uh, YouTube, you can hear him introducing Billie Holiday one night yeah. at uh, Mr. Kelly's in uh, Chicago. So uh, he worked with everybody. And yeah. uh, um, uh, one time, oh, God, who was it? Uh, Lenny Cristano uh, was doing a... They'd institute a matinee policy for a while, lunch policy at Birdland. And it takes me a moment to grab some That's of these right. proper Join nouns. The club. I'm going Sina right in front of you. So, uh, no, anyway. I, I wouldn't know because I've already gotten there. So. <laughs> anyway. Uh, he, he went in one day just to say hello, and uh, Tristano and his uh, co-musician, whose name escapes he also for the moment, um, he said to uh, Tristano, who was blind, uh, hey, Mort's here. And so Tristano says to him, want to sit in with us? And Mort playing along says, I would, but I haven't got my axe with me. And immediately Tristano reaches underneath the piano and produces a copy of the New York Times. And hands oh, I love it. Oh, that's yeah, great. Isn't that a great story? That's a great so, story. Yeah. Is that, so, is that uh, in the book? Is that yes, book? it's in the book. It's in the book. Yeah, I've got a lot of wonderful books. stories like that. And uh, I am so jealous of you. I am so jealous of you. Why? 
Well, I'll, I'll tell you why later on. Well, because look at what, what the people you're writing about. Well, I've, I've had really, I've had really good luck in terms of uh, subject matter. Uh, every book I've done has been somebody who I think needed to be done and that I had great curiosity about and I could afford or stand in some cases to spend uh, five or six years with them. And uh, and so I, I can't complain at all about subject matter. I've, I've, I've been very lucky and I'm uh, I'm very pleased for the most part with the work I've done on them. I well, you seem to have a, an affinity and an affection for comedy. I know you've done Spencer Tracy too, but uh, who who actually you know did some comedy? You know, heard him. Kept oh yeah, no, he was very good in comedy yeah, as yeah, we know, yeah. uh, especially uh, had, with uh, Miss Hepburn. But your background, you were you were in insurance, which is about yeah. a thousand degrees of separation. Yeah. <laughs> from, well, from uh, you know, I had a, I had a big people's job, and I did this on the side for a long time, and. Uh, Eventually, I uh, was able to step away from uh, the eight to five business and uh, do this full time. So I've just been doing it and having a ball doing it. And uh, I'll tell you the current one. We're, I'm not necessarily trying to position myself as an expert on comedy, but the one I'm working on right now, I shouldn't say this, but I will, uh, is uh, on the making of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Oh, and, Wow. And it's it's a hell of a story. And I got interested in that show uh, many years ago. Uh, it opened in Hollywood. The world premiere uh, took place in Hollywood, Cinerama Dome, which was built specifically for that film uh, in November of 1963. And I was taken to see it under protest on my father's part a few days later for my 10th birthday. And... Uh, uh, it was a matinee performance, and I had never seen a film like that before. I haven't seen one since, actually. <laughs> That's a bit attempts, attempts yeah. to do that. Um, most comedies, most film comedies are relatively short. You know, you look at a film like The Bank Dick, that's 70 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the Laurel and Hardy features are 60, 62 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so to try to sustain a comedy, its original concept it was it would run for four and a half hours. It's just beyond belief and also uh, beyond rational reason because uh, nobody could possibly sustain something an audience could stand that long if indeed it was that funny but, no, but the uh, comics would want, all want to get their time in so yeah absolutely and, and, <laughs> uh, and so why. and so i remember though on that particular afternoon my father who again was uh, there under protest laughed so hard he practically fell out of the seat and uh, uh and during the time that the Cinerama Dome was open, it's been closed the last couple of years now, but uh, I think there are plans afoot to, to reopen it. Uh, anytime they revive Mad World, I would go back and see it again just because it's like stepping back from, you know, 1963. And, sure. uh, and then, of course, a few, days, a few days after I saw it, the president was assassinated in Dallas. And anybody who remembers that time remembers that the entire country came to a screeching halt. And yeah. uh, when when we finally opened up again, people wanted to see that film more than any other film that was at that time, and uh, it became one of the great hits of the 1960s. And uh, it still, still is. It's it's, yeah. it's 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 completely unique. I I wrote about it a bit uh, with Spencer Tracy, of course, because he's top build in it. But I had a lot of material that didn't pertain to him, and so I thought I'm going to do something that I just feel like doing, and I don't care if the publisher likes it or not. And so. 
I'm doing this, and I've come up with a hell of a story. The background on this film is really. Remarkable. I can't wait for it to come out, though. I, yeah. I, Dick Sean well, is in that, right? Is it, Dick, Dick Sean is, is in it, and his co-star is the only person still alive from that film, who is uh, Barry Chase, Fred Astaire's uh, she uh, is? dance partner. Yeah, she's still with us. She's 88 wow. years old now, and you never know that she was over 30 years she's old. Beautiful. Talking to her. Do you, yeah, do you she know was. her, Kath? Do you know Kath? No, no, I don't. Oh, just, no. just a stunningly... You can you can experience Barry Chase by going on YouTube and finding an evening with Fred Astaire, which was uh, produced in 1958. Uh, she spent 10 years as his prime uh, dance partner, longer, for instance, in, in terms of tenure than uh, Ginger Rogers even. Right. And um, you'll get you'll get a flavor of what Barry Chase could do with Fred Astaire, and uh, uh, it's it's a marvelous show. Now, Jim, do you? Recognize right away these are people you want to write about, or does it sit with you for a while and gnaw at you? Or, I mean, uh, yeah, usually I know right away uh, if somebody is interesting enough to me to uh, merit uh, the commitment of time and effort. Um, there are some people that I think or conclude will be too much trouble, and I don't think I could stand to live with them for a period of time that would take to do a book about i i thought at one point i well i thought at one point i'd do george c scott and who was a fascinating actor as far as i was concerned tremendously self-destructive and the more i got into the subject just in terms of reading it the more painful it got and i just decided that the mess that he left behind when he died he essentially committed suicide i think in terms of uh, he knew he had an aortic aneurysm and he declined to have the surgery. So it was just a matter of time. And, uh, but, uh, uh, I think I pretty much talked myself out of that one for a long time. I did the same with Mort Saul, but, uh, I'm very happy that I went ahead and did it when I did that was so, so much of that story was in Mort's head. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and if you didn't have him as a participant in the process, you weren't going to get the story. And uh, as I said, we recorded 40 hours to do that. And Lucy was such a part of it in those later years, Lucy Mercer. Yeah. Yeah. No, she, yeah. she was, she was, she made his life up there possible. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and she made the book possible too. I mean, if she didn't want to see it done, it wasn't going to get, get done. She's a wonderful but, uh, lady. I love her. I love the theater. And I tell you, I, the first time I was there, I was there with, I don't know if you knew who Kevin, Kevin Meany is or was. Um, no, Kevin Meany. Well, he he brought me out there for the first time, mm -hmm. and when I I walked in there, it was as it was as if I had walked through the pearly gates of heaven. And you, just, <laughs> you know, you just, you just your spirit as a comic just lightens up. And I when I found out that Chaplin had worked there, and as part of the Carno show, had brought Stan Laurel with him too. I just I just kissed the stage at the first thing I did mm -hmm. when I went in there. Um, well, I, I have, I have fond memories. Oh, God, sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I have fond memories of Mort's, I think it was his 88th birthday dinner. And it was at the upper, it was on the upper floor at the theater. And Lucy had arranged for a uh, buffet spread. And uh, there were about 16 of us up there and uh, a pianist to play. And, um, uh, among the guests that night were uh, Robin Williams and his wife. Okay, yeah. And, and and uh, the affection that Robin had for Mort was really stunning because um, he fully understood Mort's role in uh, in 
what he and a lot of other comedians were able to do in later years. They were all standing on more shoulders. And uh, uh, that, that's, that was really a, a, a terrific night. And uh, it was great for me because we chatted a bit. And I was having trouble finding a publisher that would take the book. Uh, more solvable? Really? Yeah. I, I, I just couldn't find any, but it, it was just a question of the wrong people being in charge of various places yeah. at the time. But uh, uh, finally, I went, uh, went with a, a university publisher who did uh, a very, very good job with it, uh, but it didn't get the attention in New York. Uh, but at that point, uh, when Robin asked me who my uh, publisher was, I said, that's the problem, right? I don't have one. And he, he immediately said, need funding? And oh, wow. Wow. later after Mort had left and we were down outside the front of the theater standing around and Robin came over to me again. And he said, I wasn't kidding about that. You know, he said, uh, uh, I'm willing to cover the cost of the first printing. And right. I thanked him very much. That was that was really a boost at a time when I was kind of low about doing this, but I was too far into it. Uh, somebody else might have ghosted more and just walked away from it, but I couldn't right. do that. Uh, well, so, just to uh, just for, to uh, enlighten you, Kathy, the, um, Robin lived in the he lived in the neighborhood basically, and he yeah, yeah, yeah. and he, he worked he out at that theater. He was over, yeah. at, always at the Throckmorton. Yeah, so that, yeah. And he, he was he was kind of the guiding light of the place in terms of uh, yeah. uh, in the in the green room. The comedians would just uh, cluster around him. He was one of those. Uh, North stars, you know, in a sense. Yes. And, uh, and um, when um, at, when they did the big memorial for Robin at uh, the Curran Theater in San Francisco, Mort came out at one point. He was one of the speakers that day. And by that time, he was having trouble getting around. He moved very slowly as he walked to the center of the stage and to the uh, podium. And uh, I think probably, probably part of the audience wondered if, or they were surprised to find that Mort was still alive. And uh, he was kind of a legendary name, but uh, the sort of the person that got name checked on Mrs. Maisel, and you assume he died 30 years ago. And uh, so he, first thing he said into the microphone was, I've just about paid off my student loans. <laughs> yeah. Great opening line. Yeah, well, it was. Let's get to the real reason I asked you to come on tonight, and that's Buster Keaton. I mean, mm. I, I could do this all night with you because I can tell you. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm not lying. I could, I'm ready to book a flight out to L.A. So let's, go, let's go and yak for two days about comedy. Um, but um, Keaton and Chaplin, for me, uh, were my two earliest influences. And I, I was just saying just before we went on that the first my first exposure to Keaton was the Alka-Seltzer commercial as a kid. Mm -hmm. I, you know, Speedy Alka-Seltzer. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I and I asked Jimmy to pull it up because I, I was hoping it still existed. But he did a, He actually did a couple of them. But oh, he, did, he did a whole series. He did five or six of them. Right. And, but yeah, that was and, as a kid. I loved that guy. I, and and going, when then I started to see, you know, I, I discovered Laurel and Hardy and I discovered Chaplin and, and yeah. Keaton. Um, comic, have you ever done stand-up? Has that no. ever been a okay? No. Comedians complain incessantly about the road. Incessantly, all we do is bitch and moan about how hard the road is. And then I, I, I want them to read this book because what these people, what the Keaton family did, just to to make a living, 
it's extraordinary. You want to just elaborate on what life on the road was like for for little Buster and oh, it, it was rough. Uh, well, if you want to know how the how rough the road was, read the W.C. Fields book also because that was like Buster turn of the century. They were on bills mm -hmm. together in a, a few places and uh, and Houdini it, too. I was surprised. And Houdini yeah. and Houdini yeah. and um, so they made weekly jumps. You know, they had one day to get between uh, Boston and. Uh, some other nearby city or not so nearby city by train and uh, get set up to uh, run through the next morning, Monday morning, and then uh, you're on the bill for a week and uh, uh, two a day if you're lucky. And uh, uh, there were things, uh, I'll tell you something about Fields. When, um, when I started digging into his material, I discovered that in his secretary's papers that she had taken notes when he was very near death at that point in 1946. Uh, she was taking notes for an autobiography and she would sit down and, and ask him questions about things like what's your first memory, for instance. And uh, and he told her and she wrote this stuff down. I, I found these sheets of paper that uh, summarize some of this stuff. And one of the things he talked about was if you were doing one nighters, along a certain route, how you got your uh, uh, laundry done. Uh, because you had very little time and you were only in the spa space, the, 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 the theater and that, uh, that town for one day, uh, if that. And so he talked about on a certain day every week, they get gather in the basement of the theater and open up their trunks and they pull out all their washing and everything. And it would get done during their stand at that one theater and they collect at the end of the day and they were back on the road again, that sort of thing. I love little details like that, how they managed to do their day-to-day -day business of living while they were constantly on the run, you know, from one I, theater I, to the next. I mean, it's a tradition I, with comics too. They're the most resourceful people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. and even, even modern comics, because the road today is still, it's still a, it's still a voyage into hell if you're not, you know, Oh yeah, they'll heat pizza up with an iron. They they, they figure it all out. They know. <laughs> but they will make they will make do with absolutely nothing. And uh, and I think that you know it it makes if if comics ever want to leave show business and, and get real jobs, you know, they make us very we're very good candidates for jobs because we can do anything mm, and do sure. it probably better than you know civilians could ever do. Uh, sure, but his his parents I really admire them. I mean, because they 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 were involved even before he was born. Yeah, and they that's and they, they, can you explain? I was trying to get it in my head what the table act was that Joe Keaton, Joe and Myra Keaton did. Well, it, it was it, it was a group of acts that were generically known as silence and fun, and. I didn't really get that until I started digging into it a bit. I thought that was just the casual name that he had for his own act. No, it was a whole group of acts. And oh. basically what, what they would do is they, they would have, they would the basic setting, apart from a backdrop of some sort, would be a table and a couple of chairs, you know, and maybe a barrel or two, and that would be it. And the idea was to move gracefully, first of all, to be able to jump onto the table from the stage. Um, stage floor, um, move gracefully between the chairs, the table, the, uh, it was kind of a, a, a rough, sketchy, acrobatic turn. And the band would play, the pit band would play while 
these movements were ongoing. Um, they also, there was a school of it that also involved two people that did that simultaneously. Joe Keaton occasionally had another partner and they would do double silence and fun. And that was two guys that would, uh, uh, again, move gracefully, move in a way that fascinated the audience uh, and sometimes comically. Uh, Joe's big problem with silence and fun is the silence was tough for him. He liked talking to the audience too much. Of course, I've read that in your book. But Myra Buster's mother was a violinist. She would play right during the... Well, she she was kind of a prodigy when it came to uh, uh, instruments. And uh, when they were on the medicine circuits, she could now explain what the medicine circuits are. So, people well, they, they were just medicine shows that would go into primarily in the Midwest, and they would go into these uh, kind of hub towns that had farmland surrounding them on all sides and small little rural uh, uh, establishment settlements of one sort or another. And they would set up for a week and they would uh, call the local people in and they would put on shows every night and sell patent medicines along with them. And uh, uh, Myra could master, as it seemed anyway, seemingly any instrument in about uh, 24 hours by just blowing on it or plucking on it or doing whatever she had to do with it. And uh, her big trademark became a saxophone. And so she was she was a small little, uh, what was she, four feet 11, I think. And uh, she had this big sax that she played on, on uh, the stage. Uh, Joe just thought it would be funny to put the two of them together. And so she would, uh, uh, sh- she would practice on it a while and could blow a respectable marching through Georgia or something like that. And he would do his act while she was playing the saxophone. So it was kind of surreal in a sense. It, it uh, was the sort of thing that Monty Python might pull uh, a century later, but uh, uh, it, they were an acceptable act at that point. They really didn't have the spark that they got when Buster started appearing on the act. And well, then it that, became the standard yeah. act. That's, that's what I wanted to get to. Um, uh, well, Buster got his name, Led the legend is that, who gave him the name Buster? It wasn't Houdini. Yeah. That was I, one I of, assume that, but. That was one of Joe's, uh, Joe's, yeah, Joe's uh, uh, fibs. Uh, no, there's a guy named um, uh, George Pardee, P-A-R-D-E-Y. I don't know if he p- pronounced it party or Pardee. I haven't heard it pronounced by anybody who knew. And uh, But he was the son of a British playwright who died of drunkenness. And uh, he was kind of a storehouse or a repository of British slang of the period, you know, but basically staged up because he was an actor, he was a comedian. Uh, specialized in Rip Van Winkle type roles. And uh, he, um, so he observed Buster, who was prone toward, I won't say accidents because he was rarely hurt, but uh, he, he tumbled a lot, let's put it that way, as a child. And he came bouncing down a stairway one day. He was not yet a year old. And Pardee was at the uh, bottom of the stairs. And as Buster took a plop down to the final uh, uh, step and then onto the floor, he said, he said, by God, that's a regular Buster. And uh, this was before Buster Brown was a character in the U.S. The Buster was not entirely heard of as a, as a, unheard of as a name, as a nickname for a boy, but it wasn't common. But what he meant in England, a buster was a fall. It was a, a violent fall. And uh, 
another term, another word that meant the same thing was a cropper. So you come a cropper, it means that you've taken a violent fall. And so fortunately, he didn't say that's a cropper. He cropper, said that's a yeah, buster. Cropper keyed would have been yeah, cropper to... keyed, yeah, well, it, it sounds like well, it sounds like an outhouse. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, he became, but Joe said that's what he'll be known as, Buster. And if you go back and look at the Standard Trade Journal of the day, which is the New York Clipper, as I did, you find a reference to the th the three Keatons. They don't call them the three Keatons at that point, but it's Joe and Myra Keaton mm -hmm. and Buster. And he was 10 months old at the time. Wow. So uh, he started it's, early. He started so many early. of those kids were, I mean, uh, Mickey Rooney comes to mind, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the same way. I mean, they just, they, there was the family business. Yeah, they, it was they, a family business. And, and they started, you know, as infants. The great thing about Buster is he absorbed it all. He loved appearing in front of audiences and he, he loved puzzling out the uh, psychology of an audience. And that served him very well later on when he became an adult. The story that I, I love that's in the book is the one where Joe's getting heckled by somebody in the audience a bunch of kids <laughs> right that we all as comics we've all dealt with the with the heckler the heckler and and uh, at this point in buster's what i guess seven or eight years old at the, no no he I, I found out he was older i actually found when that engagement was and he was 13 i think he was oh okay all right so these these the story that the story got 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 told usually and he was five years old but no he was not <laughs> So uh, finish the story because I, I you, you you wrote well, it. Well, <laughs> anyway, it was it was it took place in New Haven where the uh, rowdy uh, uh, Yale students uh, would sit in the front rows of the vaudeville theater and heckle the acts. And uh, Joe could put up with a certain amount of that and have, hand, handle it, but uh, uh, Joe had a, a short fuse. And when he lost his temper, uh, watch out. And so. Uh, there were these students in the front row of the theater one night and they were telling the various acts how terrible they were, et cetera. And then Joe came out and uh, they heckled him a bit. He warned them. And then uh, Myra came out and started uh, blowing her sacks. And, uh, and uh, uh, he said, he said, oh, the, the, she had finished her number and the audience started to applaud and he said something standard like uh, don't spoil her guys something like that because you're giving her too much applause and one of the students or one of the group of yale students said well she stinks too and <laughs> that set joe off and he just reached for the first weapon that he could was in reach which, which was his son and so he picked buster up like this and heaved him out into the audience and that meant he had to clear the pit band because the, the band was, so he, he had to travel at least 10 feet to hit his uh, target. And Joe was a good, uh, you know, good, good thrower. So he landed in the midst of these three kids and sent all three of them to the infirmary, I think. And uh, one, one, had a one uh, ended up with a broken nose from that experience, as a matter of fact, and that was a story. And um, so, Buster was asked about it. He was asked about it on the Today Show one time when he was on, and, and he said, he, "Hugh Downs said, weren't you hurt?" He said, "No, he knew I'd be okay." He said he, his goal was just to, you know, shut them up, and so that's what he did. And uh, so Buster wasn't hurt at all. He knew how to fall. Uh, he knew what uh, muscles to tense, which ones not to, 
And uh, so he was fine. He was back up on stage while we were still trying to figure out what hit him. The, the thing about the, with, with the, with, uh, what they did with Buster, part of the act, Kathy, was they would, that uh, Joe basically fling him around the stage into the sets and, and just, and to the point where they had, I guess, what a handle sewed to the back of his shirt. Is that? Yeah, to his coat, um, to his coat, it was a suitcase handle so that he could pick him up with one hand and heave him off into a flat or something. Um, (laughs) But the whole idea, the setup behind the the act, which was considered in some respects the most violent act in vaudeville at the time, um, it was really a wildly comic acrobatic turn is what it was. Um, But Joe would come out at the beginning and he would... um, announced something about how much he loved his little son Buster, but he must learn to mind. And that with that statement, he established a theme of the act. Then he would start to do his silence and fun routine where he would get up on the table and start to move around and go from chair to chair, that sort of thing. Very agile, especially uh, with his legs. And while he'd be doing that in some form, Buster would appear out of the wings from behind where he was out of Joe's sight. And he'd have a broom in his hand and he'd walk up behind the table. The audience could see him. Joe could not see him. And he'd just sweep the broom across the table and knock his father uh, on his ass on the floor. And that was- How old was he for the first, when they first- Well, he started with the act full time when he was five years old. So he started at five and he was made up to look like a a little duplicate of his father. They both had the same makeup. He was about, you know, a third of the size of his father, but- uh, uh, they were kind of uh, a match set in some ways. And uh, he was Joe's constant uh, uh, worry and tormentor for as much as 15, 20 minutes of the act, which made it a very long act in, in yeah. Baudelaire at the time. <laughs> and uh, it got wilder and wilder. They would improvise some of the weirdest and wildest uh, uh, physical business during that time. And uh, if the audience caught on and they just laughed and laughed, they just kept going. And now, uh, you would think that uh, in modern day, you would think that that that's a case of child abuse doing that to a child, pulling at him around like that. Well, and things were rougher back then, obviously. I was say, except in New York, where they uh, they ran into. Well, them. yeah, the, the the society, the Geary society. But uh, uh, what what it was really though was, and and they were able to establish this. Uh, the Geary Society, they got written into the law. Now, this is just in Manhattan, uh, not any of the outer boroughs, but um, they had a specific list of things that children under the age of 16 could not do on stage because Geary himself was convinced that this led to uh, uh, sloth and uh, gambling and prostitution in the case of little girls. And so uh, uh, they forbid them to sing or dance or do anything on stage other than deliver lines in a dramatic part that didn't last very long. Uh, but they failed to point out specifically that you could not pick up a child and throw them across the stage into a flat. And so Joe used that as his workaround in a sense and, and said, well, I don't see that in the law anywhere. Uh, but Buster wore a padded costume. He knew instinctively how to fall so he wouldn't get hurt. He was never seriously hurt uh, during that time. There were a couple of times when uh, he had to take some time off. But uh, in terms of uh, breaking breaking his leg or an arm or something like it, it, it didn't happen. Uh, he could establish under the right circumstances that he was not hurt. There were no bruises on him. Uh, and... 
I think it set the stage and an attitude also for what he did later in motion pictures. Um, some of the death-defying things that he did in films were not perceived by him as necessarily death-defying, defying because uh, if you did it properly, it wasn't dangerous. And so as a professional, his idea was we're doing it properly and it will not be dangerous because of that. And uh, that was part of his professional uh, uh, professional profile, let's put it that way. I mean, he, he was proud of the fact that he could pull off that stuff and not be injured by it. Well, once he uh, he he turned into uh, he turned into an adult and he left the, the family act in, in in Wisconsin, I guess, where they had the uh, or Michigan. It was Los Angeles, actually. But uh, I mean, uh, yeah. Okay, but he we started. He began working with Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah, well, that was in New York City. That was in New York oh, that's, City. Okay. He had broken up the family act, and he was 18 at that point. And he was done with it. And, uh, uh, well, no, actually, he wasn't 18. He was, he was when they broke up the act, it was uh, 1916. And he, so he was 21. He was 21. I should read my own book sometime. Um, <laughs> it's pretty uh, good, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll take that under advisement. Thank you. Uh, read the one uh, about Mort Saul. Yeah, I will. I'll get to that one also. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. I get asked to do things sometimes on some of my older subjects. Uh, Bruce Goldstein, who runs uh, Film Forum in New York, uh, checked with me recently. He wants me to introduce some Preston Sturgis films uh, in January. Well, Preston Sturgis is a subject. The book was published 40 years ago. I haven't worked with that subject in 40 years. And so I've got to go back and and start to read my own book again and, and dig back into my files so I've got something to say. When We're going to do them on Zoom. I'm not going to go there in person. But uh, uh, that's, well, uh, I'll tell you another story. I, I digress, but I'll get back to the no, meat no. of your question. digress all you want. Um, when I was first working on Buster Keaton, and this happens sometimes, um, I heard... I had heard that Peter Bogdanovich had been hired to do a, a Buster documentary. It was uh, uh, by uh, Cohen, who, who owned the Raymond Rohauer prints and, and uh, wanted a showcase for them. And so he hired Peter to do them. And, I, and Peter and I knew each other a bit because we had the same editor at Knopf. And uh, so one day the phone rings and it's Peter Bogdanovich. No, no, it's, it's his assistant. Pardon me. I'm getting ahead of myself. And they said, Peter would like you to go on camera as Buster's biographer. And I was just, I just started writing the book and I was still in the vaudeville period. I hadn't dealt with any of the films. I hadn't watched a lot of them mm -hmm. really. And so I said, well, thank Peter very much for his interest. And I appreciate it thinking of me and all that, but I don't know the material. I haven't gotten to that point yet. The timing is really terrible. So thank him. But I said, I said, I, I can't do it. I'm, I'll make a, you know, I, I just can't do it. And so she said, oh, okay. And so a couple of days passed and the phone rings again. It's Peter. And he said, Jim, can you help me out here? And I said, Peter, I don't know the material. I'm still in the vaudeville period. I'll, I'll make a fool of myself and wreck your film. And there's about a half second pause. And he said, can you come in on Tuesday? <laughs> so I spent the weekend, my wife will tell you this, um, Watching the major films, I had, there were a couple of features I had never seen, watching them at high speed in some cases just to see what was in them so that I wouldn't sound like a complete fool on Tuesday when I went on camera for Bogdanovich. And 
I walked in on Tuesday. It was like cramming for a test in college. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to forget it the next day. But uh, uh, I went in brimming with this knowledge and had a pile of notes that I put right out of camera range so I could do this. And usually when they want you to do these things, you know, you're supposed to speak in complete sentences and they cut the questions out and all that. The, Peter wasn't like that at all. He just We just had a conversation about Buster. I didn't look at the notes once. And... And he, he said to me at the beginning, don't worry, Jim, I'll protect you. He understood what the situation was. And so, I, and he did, he did. It kind of came That's comforting. Okay. It's nice to know. I, 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 I admit to as much of a fan of Buster as I am, I, I was cramming today. Uh, I watched, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I went and rewatched One Week, which mm -hmm. is one of my favorite films. In, oh, yeah. And that put him on the map. It really did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was his first, that was his first film, right? Mm -hmm. as, as a star well, comedian, yeah. And it capped the movie. If you hadn't seen it, it's he he's just recently married, and he gets as his gift a house that he has to put together, and it goes. Is the that the one that? Uh, uh, there, that gag is in there, but not the one you're yeah. thinking of. That's oh, okay. in another film, the one with the, the whole the whole front yeah. of the house fault. Yeah, what mm -hmm. was that? Which one was that, Jim? That he That's Steamboat Bill Jr. Steamboat um, Bill, but he but used that, the that gag. That gag, if you watch the films in order, which I was careful to do, so you can uh -huh. see the progression as easily as possible, that gag appears in one of the Arbuckle shorts. Back That's in, right. Uh, yeah, you yeah. mentioned that in the book. Yeah, right? and it he kept doing it on a larger scale, but he did it about four times, and the last time he had a two-ton uh, facade of a building fall on him. And he had mapped out in such a way so that he would be standing right where the window was when the thing fell on him, if he had moved an inch or two one way or the other, he would have been crushed. I think he, and that's, he said that's an example. Had like yeah. Inches. And that, yeah. And that's an example of what I meant earlier when I said, you know, the, the way, the proper way of doing a stunt is doing it in a way where you're not injured. And if you're injured, you didn't do it right. And that's the difference between an amateur and a pro is, is, Doing it right is the way a professional does it, and well, he knew exactly the other what film, he was doing. Yeah, the other film I crammed today was The General, and, uh, yeah. and you know, there's that famous scene where he's sitting on the cow catcher, and, and, mm. and he's kicking the and that one gag where he throws. Uh, granted, the logs were made out of cardboard, but to be able to do that on one take, mm. he throws a log down, and it knocks another log off of the track to clear the way for the train to go through. It's just, yeah. it's just brilliantly funny. I mean, it's just. Brilliant. Well, it's 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 better yet if you contemplate the fact that he never used a stuntman, and he was very respected by the actual professional stuntmen. Uh, Buster's point about using stuntmen was that uh, they they could do technically they could do whatever they were being asked to do, but they weren't necessarily funny. And right. the trick was to do the trick and do it so it's funny. Um, a perfect example of that, if you ever get around to watching a film, one of the MGM musicals from the 40s uh, in the good old summertime, uh, Judy Garland and Van Johnson. Buster was put in that film in a supporting role just so that he could do an elaborate physical gag toward the end where he breaks what everybody thinks to be a Stradivarius violin. And mm -hmm. uh, he shows you how you can imagine easily how a stuntman would do and he'd get the violin broken. But it wouldn't be funny, funny, and it wouldn't be suspenseful. And watch Buster do it. It's a whole different experience. I know I'm jumping all over the place with you, but again, you know, I, since I don't no, be my with, guess. Go ahead. Well, I would have to live with you to really <laughs> just get everything that's off my chest. 
You don't want to uh, live with his... her, Jim. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, uh, he trained uh, Lucille Ball, uh, did yeah. he not? When, when, yeah. uh, for I Love Lucy, for the gags, a lot of the gags. Well, they, when she, she had been on radio with Richard Denning as right. her husband. And what my was favorite my, favorite, my favorite husband, right? right. <clears throat> and they were talking to CBS about doing something very similar on, on TV. And she wanted to do it with Desi Arnaz. And the network's position back then, now this is 1951, I think, if I remember correctly. The network's position was no one will believe that you are married to a heavily accented Cuban like that. She said, well, I am married to him. We're married in real life. And, and so she got the idea of doing a small vaudeville tour, which ended up in New York, where she and Desi would do an act for 20 minutes and show how they would interact and do, uh, do a physical comedy together. And so Buster helped her prepare that act. And part of the component there uh, was the Desi Arnaz band, mm -hmm. uh, which was popular at the time. And the other component was what Lucy would do to kind of screw up the performance. Mm -hmm. And it had an element of the three Keatons to it, you might say. And uh, Buster came up with the idea and they had the, they had the uh, props built where she would at one point come out and pretend or act like she was a seal. Right. And she, she would she would bite on the uh, the, the horns on the act and, and uh, uh, put out a little tune as part of it and uh, flapper flapper hands and that sort of thing. Well, Buster worked with her on all of that. Uh, he taught her how to make use of gags, how, uh, not gags, props and how to respect your props, how to handle them properly, et cetera. And uh, and so if you. If you've watched a lot of I Love Lucy, you've seen that routine. I think they put it in the pilot, and they later that was the pilot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and that so, was the uh, routine they took on the road to rehearse. Yeah, that was the routine they that they took on the yeah. on the road, and that was Buster. So, Buster, in a sense, helped make I Love Lucy possible in in the in the form that we know it today. Uh, yeah, and I and when I read that, I just was just like, oh my god, I love this guy even more now. Just mm -hmm. to know that that he would, you know, he there was a Another comic that helped her too. I don't remember. I, I, I don't remember who it was, but uh, but he was primary. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. So go back to Fatty Arbuckle now. I, anyway, yeah, I, I said it was dropping all over the place. Anyway, yeah. No, it was in it was in um, it was in New York that uh, Buster had broken up the family act at the age of twenty one, and he he dropped his mother off in uh, Chicago, I think, to visit relatives, and he went on to New York, and uh, he went to one of the big. Uh, uh, agents back there said, I've broken up the three Keatons and I need work. And so this guy was going to put him in uh, the passing show, uh, the Schubert passing show of 1917. And uh, he went to J.J. Schubert and said, here, this is Buster Keaton putting your show. And he asked, do you sing? And Buster said, yeah, I, I have sung on stage. Uh, he was kind of perplexed by that because he wasn't valuable as a singer. Uh, but anyway, Buster, so they agreed to put Buster in the, in the show. It was a review. It was like the Ziegfeld Follies. And Buster was waiting for uh, rehearsals to start. And he runs into a man named Joe Skank, who booked the three Keatons into uh, uh, vaudeville for the end of their time when uh, when uh, Joe had essentially uh, uh, 
been so belligerent toward uh, one of the big players in vaudeville that uh, he was uh, banned from uh, the two-a-day. And uh, they ended up back in uh, uh, um, regional vaudeville, uh, which was tougher for them with an act that like that because two-a-day was okay. They could do a matinee performance. They could do an evening performance. So that was 20 minutes in the afternoon, 20 minutes in the evening. But Joe was getting older then, and the, mm -hmm. the three and four performances a day business was not for him any longer. Well, jumping from a standstill along to a table. I just want yeah. Joe Skank, by the way, uh, is played a small, very tiny part in my early life. I worked at Palisades Amusement Park. No kidding. I a, yeah, uh, yeah, when no I was kid. a young, youngster. And uh, Joe Skank and his brother, I think, were the... Yeah, Nicholas well, Skank. Yeah, they started Palisades Amusement Park. Yeah, they, they yeah. did indeed. I tell that story in the book, and, uh, and uh, I didn't realize that. Uh, well... Um, Joe Skank, in this case, said to Buster, what are you doing right now? And Buster was just going to shows because he had nothing to do at the moment. He was waiting for the passing of Schubert show to start. And uh, so he said nothing. He said, I'm doing a series of comedies with Fatty Arbuckle. And would you like to come by and just, uh, you know, get in the scene one day and see what it's like? And he thought, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So uh, he showed up at the Norma Talmadge studio, which was on... 46th Street, if I'm remembering correctly, it's still there. It's uh, it's uh, a car park. It's been a car park for decades. But uh, of course, uh, in in 1917, it was a, a former manufacturing building, and uh, Skank had taken it and made it into a movie studio. And so they were on the top floor, and they were making a, a short called The Butcher Boy, and Buster just joined in. And he decided he was fascinated by it. And uh, so he went back to Schubert and had him tear up the contract. And he went with Arbuckle. I think he was going to get something like $1,500 a week from Schubert. Uh, Arbuckle paid $40 a week, right. but he didn't care. Uh, he was fascinated by the movie camera. And there was that, there, and too, the, the, the contrast, you know, the fat, the fat man, the skinny kid, the skinny guy uh, mm -hmm. was such a common. Um, uh, element for a comedy team they almost were uh, a comedy team but they became they, they became more so as time went on right uh, the last arbuckle comedies that were made in uh 1919 1920 they, they were indeed uh more of a team than not uh and they were he was well. and he was a huge star and i, and I don't mean that yeah. literally yeah. He, was star, he was, star. He was uh, until the, he had a scan he was involved in a scandal kathy uh, with a young girl, I think he was accused of rape or something. Uh, was that the yeah. underage? And, well, oh, right. Manslaughter. Manslaughter, ultimately. Oh, manslaughter. That's right. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. And uh, it ruined them. I mean, it just, you know. It, it... But uh, but uh, uh, that's when, well, it wasn't quite the same thing. What, what happened was Arbuckle wanted to move into features. Mm -hmm. And he told Skank he wanted to move into features. And uh, he he was never happy when he was making shorts or when he was filming in general because there was a constant pressure to come up with business and funny things etc and he was a high-strung guy drank a lot and uh he thought well if i'm going to you know if i'm going to have so much anxiety over doing this work i might as well do two features a year or three features a year as the case may be i'll make more money and i won't have to worry about producing six or eight shorts a year Right. So that's what happened. So he went into he went into uh, features, and that left a hole for somebody to come in and take over that uh, two reel comedy 
series, and that was Buster Keaton. So it became, it was the same company, uh, same board of directors, et cetera. But uh, all of a sudden, they took Buster Keaton and dropped him into where that was cinematic. Cinematic is that uh, Arbuckle? Arbuckle? Uh, Arbuckle pronounced it Komiki, and so it was. Uh, that was the Komiki company, and. Uh, and so I've always called it Komiki, but uh, uh, when Arbuckle got into trouble, they uh, changed the name of the company to Buster Keaton Productions Incorporated. Right. And that was the company that produced all of his independent shorts and features after that. Okay. So we're, we're, we are running way late, but if you don't mind staying a little. No, sure. mind. that's fine. You sure? Yeah. yeah. Oh, just grab your nose if you want to end this. It, it's 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 only three forty-five where I am, so I'm okay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, it's three forty-five somewhere. It might as well be you. <laughs> there will be cocktail hour after that. So, Laura, let's go to the comparison between Chaplin and and, and Keaton because it's inevitable. Um, I, I love I love them both for different reasons, mm -hmm. uh, but Chaplin seems to have gotten short shrift with it in the company. You know, in terms of being iconic um mm -hmm. i think do you, do you think so Bless well, you. well he's he's more he's a different kind of character and they appeal to different people um uh, i've always said about chaplin and i i have much respect for chaplin and what he accomplished and he was certainly a, he certainly came along earlier than buster did but buster to his credit was not trying to be another chaplain mm -hmm. buster was trying to be someone else entirely and uh I think what he did and what his instincts were with his comedy, with, with the films that he did, there was a certain logic to everything he did. Chaplin put it all out there for you, and he, he did not leave you any room to second-guess him. You knew exactly what Chaplin wanted you to do, what Chaplin was setting up for you to see, and what you were supposed to do when you responded to it, which was to laugh. Uh, if Chaplin wanted to evoke tears, he would do so. There's nothing ambiguous in any way about it. Buster, on the other hand, was the kind of guy who really respected his audience. And so he invited the audience into the process. He wasn't telling you what to think. Mm -hmm. And that was one thing that he always said about when, when uh, uh, he was asked about uh, uh, soliciting uh, sympathy from an audience. And he said, I don't ask them for sympathy. If they want to give me some, that's fine. But I'm not going to ask them for it. Chaplin, Chaplin asked you for it. Uh, yeah. He did in the most elegant way possible, but he did. And uh, so I think Buster appealed to a different demographic, a different uh, slice of the audience, not as large as for Harold Lloyd, not as large as for Chaplin, but the people who did love Buster and love his work uh, were adamant about it. They were fiercely loyal to Buster Keaton. And here we are, you know, a hundred years later, and we're still talking about Keaton in a way that we don't about Chaplin, and we yeah. certainly don't about Harold Lloyd. Well, he was almost the antithesis of Chaplin. Chaplin, like you said, wore his emotions on his sleeve, what, what was left of it. I mean, mm -hmm. you look at the, the film like The Kid, where, you know, Jackie Coogan's, you know, screaming for, you know, Chaplin. And oh, yeah, it just tears your heart out. Tears your heart out still, yeah. even, even now. Sure. Uh, but there's that stoicism that that Keaton has where, you know, the stone face. And mm -hmm. I was watching that just uh, on the general where he, he takes uh, the girl, I can't remember her name, but he helps her. Mary escape from That's it. And, and he's just so gentle with her. And even though his face is not showing it, it's coming through anyway. Uh, he, that's the brilliance of him. I think that he's a, he, what, what Chaplin did with emotions, it was, he put it all out there, but Keaton mm -hmm. got the same reaction, but in a very, 
very understated way. Yeah, King didn't demand it. He didn't sue for those reactions, if you will. And uh, have you seen a film he did called Go West? I, uh, I believe I have, but if you'll just refresh my memory, I will. It's 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 Keaton, and he develops this affinity for a Jersey cow, and he proceeds to. <laughs> no, I have he, not seen that one. Well, I, I got to tell you because it's one of the features I had not seen when I started this book, and I immediately fell in love with it. It's one of my favorites, uh, and uh, when I did, we we did. Um, a series of films, uh, Buster's Century, we called as a matter of fact, at Film Forum back in March of this year. And um, Bruce, who's, who programs that those series, uh, said, which ones do you want to introduce? I was coming out of town for about a week or so. And I said, I'd like to do uh, Our our Hospitality, which is another one I hadn't seen. I, that's another one I fell in love. And I, I want to do uh, Go West. And he said, you sure you want to do Go West? And it kind of made a face. And I said, yeah. And he said, I don't think it's very funny. And I said, well, tell you what, give, give me a chance to introduce it and let's see what happens. Okay. And so I did, but I, I took it in a different direction than what you would expect because, you know, people think it's a standard issue, Western movie parody. And there are elements of that to it, but the real gist of the story is his relationship with this animal. And he, he was a guy that had uh, a real sense. Animals loved him. You know, it was just, it was just something that they in instinctively knew about him. My father was like that. And maybe you've known somebody like that who, um, you know, you, you'd put my father in a situation like in a petting zoo or something, and the animals would start to follow him around. Uh, and Buster was exactly the same way. And when he settled down in later years out in Woodland Hills, uh, he kept animals on the property and uh, chickens, that sort of thing. Uh, they were there for the eggs, not for dinner. And uh, he, he always said, I'm on the animal side. So this is a film that mm. really kind of demonstrates that. And uh, I, so I did a hell of a sell job with the audience that day. And I, I said, you know, if you've ever put out food for a feral cat or you've, if you've ever made a point of adopting a pet from an animal shelter, then maybe this film is for you. Watch I'll it. I'll have and to go food. watch it. Yeah. And, 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 and I got Bruce good on that one because when, when the lights came up at the end, there were cheers from the audience. They just, I lost count of people. <laughs> I was signing books out in the lobby afterwards, and I lost count of the number of people who thanked me because they had never seen the film, and they just had a terrific time with it. So, uh, so but that's, that's that kind of takes you by surprise. And, but he's, and it's, he's, it's he's kind huge. of. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But but he there's a part where he and the the cow in the film develop their relationship, and it's just the two of them on uh, uh, the Arizona flats, and and there's no pathos to it that's intentional or obvious as it would be with Chaplin, but it just it just grabs you. He, he's he one thing about Keaton was he was an excellent actor. And, and yes. you, he, he was a great dramatic actor. He, that was a secret that few people realize. But you watch Keaton, you watch a lot of his stuff, and I've watched everything in the order in which it was made to do this book. And uh, you'll be roundly impressed. Uh, he was a terrific actor. And that's one of the reasons why he was able to put across the stuff he did with such subtlety is because he knew how to communicate that. I, I always, I've always, I always say that when, when I talk to comics, we always talk about comedy, and 
and and I, I can't emphasize, you know, the use of body, your body to, to generate or, or to increase a laugh where mm-hmm. so many comics don't. Uh, and I don't know why that skill is so fallen by the wayside. I, I use my face a lot in my act. And it, sure. It, uh, and I, that's I, just and to can... stop the objects from hitting her. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, right. Uh, but but Buster always insisted upon being shot full figure, uh, unless he had a point with a close up. But but, and that was the reasons because he communicated with his entire body, not just with his face. And uh, and, the, and those and, guys and girls, yeah. uh, they 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 generated their laughs and without words. Yeah, absolutely, without words. So you which, needed that body. You needed the body to, to to say what you wanted to say. Well, not only that, but it, it was always it, it, the the process of writing for people like that back back then. They were not called writers so much as they were gag men, and mm-hmm. uh, they had to dream up physical business. Later, when he went into television, all those guys were gone, and Buster lamented because he didn't want to talk on television. He didn't have to. Uh, he lamented the fact that uh, there was nobody left that he could hire to work up material for him. If he wanted to get out there and tell jokes, there are all kinds of people that would feed him material. But but doing what he did best, no, it wasn't possible. Which, which brings to mind, again, going back to Chaplin, when talkies came along, Chaplin mm-hmm. was sort of able to make that transition. Keaton, not so much, right? Well, Keaton was mismanaged. Uh, uh, Chaplin owned his own films. He owned his own mm-hmm. studio. And he could do damn well what he wanted to do. And he took two years to make City Lights, for instance, um, which, which in which he did not movie. speak. Yeah, in which yeah. he did not speak. And then he he kept it up. 1936, he made Modern Times. Again, it's a silent movie, essentially, with sound effects and music. Uh, he didn't speak on screen until 1940. Uh, great, great, great dictator. Great, great dictator. dictator. Yeah, that yeah. was a great dictator. Um, but uh, Keaton, he was mismanaged by a... a idiot of a producer uh, named Larry Weingarten, who was uh, the brother-in-law of Irving Falberg at the time. And uh, um, uh, Weingarten didn't have a sense of Keaton's character at all. He didn't understand what made Keaton successful. Uh, So once talkies came in, they put him in the most inappropriate uh, talking film possible. Uh, Keaton petitioned Falberg to let him do something that was in which he was more in control. But by that point, Keaton was drinking heavily because his marriage was falling apart. And uh, the net result of that was very mixed. He did one very, very good uh, talking feature, I think, which was called Parlor, Bedroom, and Bath. But it was very good. The fact that it was very good was an accident. And ultimately, uh, he just drank himself out of the contract. Well, jumping toward the end of his life, because I I know we are, are, uh, I hate to say that we are, over <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I don't care do you open the book with he's uh he's shooting a film in in vancouver mm-hmm. uh, at the age of it had to be shortly before his death right what he, he died at yeah, 70? He, yeah he died at 70 he was 68 when he was doing uh the rail rotter in uh, canada uh jerry potterton who directed the rail rotter just died a few months ago uh is that film available is oh it, yeah, you can go online. You can see it on oh, uh, I, 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 on I, I, YouTube in a very beautiful color print. Um, the two films that kind of go hand in hand, and they're both on YouTube. In fact, most of the Keaton canon is on YouTube and can be viewed for free. I do encourage anybody listening to this, though, if uh, you have a chance to see Buster Keaton with a live audience, you know the way these silent films were made to be presented with live music, ideally, uh, you're in for a real treat. Don't pass it up. 
these films work beautifully with an audience. Uh, but uh, what I wanted to do with the Rail Rider was show Buster at essentially the end of his life uh, still deeply involved in the process of filmmaking and doing essentially what he had always done, which is directing and co-directing a silent movie. Uh, it's in color. Uh, it's it's it doesn't look like a silent feature, a feature or short the way his used to look. But uh, there he is, and he's still co-directing it very much with Jerry Potterton. And what I wanted to get across is the process of how the give and take worked in that time and how you can apply that to what happened in earlier times as a result. And how um, even at the age of 60, uh, almost 70, he's still yeah. taking insane risks. Doing yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. No, he's, he was, uh, he was wonderful. You get a sense of that. And also you get the sense of his outrage when Jerry yeah. expressed his concern that Buster's going up over a single track trestle and uh, he might fall off. And, Buster says, child's play, child's play. And, Kath, he's, uh, on, he's on one of those, was it one of the push cards? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. A speeder. But he's, a he's reading a yeah. map, and the yeah. map gets all tangled up in his face. I mean, and the guy's, he's he's probably drunk, and he's probably, you know, he's close to dying at this point. No, no, he wasn't drunk then. He was not he wasn't drunk. drunk. Oh. No, 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 but, but he knew what. He knew what he was doing, and he, and you can wow. you can see him in the documentary that uh, uh, they made along with it called Buster Keaton Rides again, also on YouTube, and you can see how the creative process works. You get a real sense of this guy, and uh, I I saw that film before I saw the Railroad Rodder. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, and there's a point where he's arguing with Jerry about uh, that trestle gag, and he's saying he's he uh, Jerry's saying well. Uh, this is part of the gag and keaton says with great impatience the the bridge is not your gag the bridge is suspense and he's he's breaking down in his mind exactly mm -hmm. the elements it's like diagramming a sentence you know and and i i, I heard that and i thought by god this guy's the hitchcock of comedy he, he knows That's a exactly, great analogy yeah, yeah he knows right. exactly why everything's there and he knows the impact he wants to create and how it all goes together and that's what I wanted to get in the reader's mind right at the beginning of the book. Uh, so that as you're watching what happens, it, it spoils it spoils the suspense of, uh, of whether he's going to live to be 70 years old or not. He does. He goes through some harrowing times getting to that point. But I'm, I'm telling the audience right up front, he, he turns out OK. But there's a lot that goes into what happens between now and back then. Uh, but I wanted the audience to see him at work. And this is such a vivid experience watching this film and then watching the result of it, which is the real rotter itself. Uh, I could see it in my mind's eye. I mean, that's, you know, testimony, yeah. testimony to your writing. I mean, it, uh, I could see him doing exactly what you said he did. And, I, I, and it's, I, I, it made me smile. It, it, I, I appreciate that because that's the, the thing, the toughest thing to do, especially when you're talking about physical comedy is, how do you express it in a way that doesn't bore the reader or doesn't totally take the edge off the humor? And uh, uh, I worked very hard at that. And uh, well, I'm, glad it, I'm glad it comes across that way. I appreciate that. Well, as a comic, you know, I, I uh, every, everything is everything about Buster is sacred to me. So, I mean, mm. you know, well, including to me also. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I know that, you know, just I knew that like three minutes into this. Yeah, Please tell yeah. me you'll come back and talk about 
your other books. Uh, sure. The next one, the next one we have to schedule is, is the W.C. Fields book, or okay. and or the Mort Saul book. Okay. I'll take either yeah. one. I'll take you either way. Thank you for thank you for all that you do to put this into words so that it lives. For you well, know, thank you that, very much. I appreciate that because the the history is so important, and we can't mm. forget how it started and why mm. one thing led to another thing and you know, how we got here. And so mm. the fact that you put so much love into the project to, you know, to put it all on paper is really wonderful. So thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And believe me, you'll hear from me in the next couple of months saying, but don't call it, the police. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great holiday season too. Thank you. Uh, thank you too. You. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Happy now. holidays, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Wow, that was fun. I know. What that was really a lot of fun. Fascinating. Yeah, like, he was. You never, you know, you never know that behind the scenes stuff. And well, he, crazy. you know, he he indulged me too, and I and I and I'm sorry I didn't mean to dominate the conversation. I what else is new? I know, and I'm sorry about that. But I get, I'm like a kid in the candy store. I can't. I want to know everything that I've ever wanted to ask about him, not Jim, about Buster Keaton. These yeah. are my idols, you know, and yeah. and and uh, uh, he. It's all right. The book is amazing. Again, the book is Buster Keaton, uh, a filmmaker's life. Uh, James Curtis is the author. Please get it. It's a great read. Yeah, and uh, what a and nice he, man. Yeah, really. He, I knew he was getting a little antsy with us, but uh, he he stuck it out. Uh, <laughs> patient man, very patient. He was very man. patient, man. yeah. He was very, and so were you. I and love I, how you 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 do this every show. You're like, yeah, we're running long, but yeah, screw it. I'm gonna ask you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was got you know, I was looking going. at the clock. I know, and I keep hearing Jimmy in my head going, "No, no, keep going," you know, and then uh, uh, I just I didn't want to wear out my welcome. Yeah, it's Jim the, the battle of uh, the good clock and the bad clock. Well, I, 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 yeah, that's exactly what it is. But I, you know, before we came on, I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try, I'll try to be, I'll try to behave. You can't. Uh, and then he started talking. I was like, oh yeah, but wait, oh yeah, but wait. <laughs> uh, it, he was good. He was a lot of fun. He that was. was good. He was. Good. I don't care if anybody likes this interview. I this was one of my favorites. How can you not like it? I don't know. You never know. Somebody charming, might not like it. lovely, smart, Ooh, smart. My God, oh. smart man. Wow. You know, I was trying to get him to write a book about me. Well, it's been done. No, but I was sending him that message telepathically. You know, that, you, oh. well, give it, give him some time. Once he gets over oh. WC Fields, he'll. I'm to, serious. I mean, uh, we'll have him back maybe for WC Fields or or Mortsall, either one uh, oops, or both, yes. if he's yeah. willing to do that. Yes. Um, oh, I feel all right? better now. Do you need a cigarette? Yeah, I was. I was afraid I wasn't going to be prepared enough. You, you did know, good. I you did good. You 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 crammed. You passed the exam. Yeah, I actually, I'm, I'm still. I thought I'd be done with the book by now, but I, I, I. I How about now? You done it. now? What about now? No, You're done no, now. What about no, now? now? No, not, no, no, no. Loser. <laughs> anyway, I know you're tired. Uh, uh, you look at that thin mountain air now, and it, it makes you tired before your before your time. Listen, I'm not going to see you. I know we're not supposed to date these shows, 
but uh, this basically is Christmas week, that's 2022. Which is why and, I have uh, two trees up. Well, you could just be a weird person, but well, well, you are a weird too, person. But... So. but I want to wish you Shut and up. Your family. Shut up. Will you let me be? Come on, I'm about to do nice. I'm doing the oh. nice part of the show where I'm nice to you. I love Go you, ahead. and I, w- I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I love you, too. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate. What'd you get me? What'd you get me for Christmas? I can't tell you. It's a surprise. But it rhymes with cheese. Cheap bitch. Cheese. Rhymes with cheese? Well, it is cheese. I got you cheese for Christmas. I got you a Christmas cheese. How about 48 rolls of bamboo toilet paper? <laughs> That's for me, baby. Bye. Bye.